1: Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, on iTunes and via the web. I'm Nick Cheeseman, a Research Fellow at the Australian National Universities College of Asia and the Pacific. Today I'm joined by Robert Cripp, a professor in the ANU's School of Culture, History and Language, to talk about Wild Man from Borneo, a cultural history of the Orangutan, which he co-authored with Helen Gilbert and Helen Tiffin, published in 2014 by the University of Hawaii Press. *Wild Man from Borneo both narrates and probes the narratives of the Orangutan human encounter over four centuries. A persistent concern of the book is how this encounter is constantly troubling, because the Orangutan challenges political, juridical, and ethical ideas, perceptions, and representations of humanness. Concentrating on the fascination with and investigation of the orangutan as a peculiarly western pursuit, the book tracks this encounter from the 17th century through to its depictions in 20th century cinema and contemporary advocacy for animal rights. Wild Man from Borneo is an incredibly rich and multi-layered study which will appeal to general readers as well as specialists. In addition to its lively and detailed written account of the human orangutan encounter, It contains over 50 illustrations that I'm sure you are going to want to take a look at after listening to this interview. I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Today on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, we're joining Robert Cribb to discuss the new book that he has co-authored with Helen Gilbert and Helen Tiffin, Wild Man from Borneo, A Cultural History of the Orangutan*. Robert, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, I wonder if you can begin by telling us a little bit about yourself, Uh, many of our listeners who already know you and your work, but for those of you, for those of them who don't, can you kindly um, begin with a a brief introduction?
0: Well, thank you, Uh, thank you, Nick. I'm a historian of Indonesia, I, I work mainly on the big questions around Indonesia's national identity, and particularly how the the noble goals that are the basis of Indonesia's national identity are reconciled with or not reconciled with the problem of mass violence in Indonesian history. So this project is in many ways a very different one, but it goes back in many ways to my uh, my family background. I come from a, a family of biologists. I grew up uh, going on uh, excursions into the bush, into the, uh, into the barrier reef. And when I started working on Indonesia, I always had an interest in the Indonesian environment, in the, at least in the back of my mind. Uh, I became interested in the way in which the Suharto regime organized its conservation policy. And that interest gradually led me into this uh, question of the orangutan. The the topic itself arose out of a conversation with one of my co-authors, Helen Tiffin. We were both interested in natural history, both interested in orangutans, and we decided to apply for a grant, which we got.
1: And perhaps say a little bit more about that, that initial conversation and... Um, what sparked your, your thinking around the writing of a cultural history?
0: Well, the, the form of the cultural history only gradually took uh, took shape. What we were interested in, particularly at the beginning, or at least what was the substance of the conversation, was the way in which orangutans sit at the very margin between humans and animals. Hardly anyone who looks at orangutan doesn't think, gee, that orangutan looks like someone I know. And we look at people we know every now and think uh, they have a resemblance to some, at least some kind of a, a great ape. And that that question of just what makes a human, what distinguishes humans from the rest of uh, existence, is one of the fundamental questions that people have asked for uh, for millennia. Now we're not answering that big question, but we're using the orangutan as a way of. Uh, Examining how people have asked that question in relation to an animal that lives in Southeast Asia.
1: This question of uh, the 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 margin between the humans and animals is indeed a it's a theme that runs throughout the entire book. And one of the things I enjoyed about the book was thinking that I was going to be reading about orangutan. I realised that I was really reading about myself. what is the the nature of humanness Um, so perhaps um, if if you could tease it out a little bit more in uh, leading us into the discussion of the contents of the book Um, having had that thought how did you go about identifying sources what sort of materials you would be using how did you conduct the research how did you bring your third author into the discussion
0: well, we, we wanted to write a fairly comprehensive history of the way that orangutans had appeared in philosophy, in culture, and also to write effectively a history of the the way in which orangutans had been treated by humans, the way in which humans had responded to orangutans. So it's it's a project that went in many different directions. United by the orangutan itself, and united by that question of just how human might they be, and therefore how much responsibility do we uh, do we have for, to, towards them? So the, the different chapters cover different aspects of the, uh, the the history of the orangutan. For instance, in the first chapter, we're really dealing with the discovery of the uh, of this red ape by westerners. Uh, there were rumours. Going all the way back to the third century AD, rumours of a, a red ape in the in the East Indies. But it was really only in the 17th century that the Europeans first encountered and recorded their encounters with, their, with orangutan. And right from the start, they were juggling with the question of whether these creatures might be a kind of human being or whether they might simply be uh, be an animal. I suppose you have to we have to remember that. Even in the 17th century, although Darwin was still two centuries ahead, Europeans were already questioning the idea of a a simple creation by God. They were already open to hints of evolutionary ideas. And that question of how the orangutan might fit with humankind was important for all sorts of thinkers. For instance, we found Rousseau had written an essay about orangutans. And in that essay, he suggests that orangutans really are humans, that the reason why they live in the jungle, climb trees, don't wear clothes, was that they didn't have a chance to be civilised. And he suggested that if you brought an orangutan, a young orangutan particularly, into Western society, gave it a good education, then it could take its place in Western society, looking no more different from other humans than any of the, the different uh, varieties of, uh, of humankind. And one of the really interesting things we found in the book is the way that the, the social meaning of arguments changes uh, over, over time. So when you read Rousseau, he presents it in very liberal terms. He presents it in terms of uh, doing human justice to the, uh, to the orangutans. But within half a, half a century or so, People had taken up his idea and were using it as a justification for slavery. They were arguing that, that if you included orangutans as human beings, then it was possible to have a hierarchy of humankind. Orangutans at the bottom, and then Hottentots and Patagonians and Australian Aborigines, and then Africans, and then Asians, and then Indians, and then Europeans, and finally at the very top, ancient Greeks. Uh, So what was in one context a highly liberal argument was in the other context an argument in in favour of slavery.
1: There are so many layers here and you're starting to to work your way through some of them, but I'd I'd like to dwell on on some of them a a bit more if we can. So there are the political dimensions, there are the scientific dimensions, um, and political dimensions which are both um, radical, radically conservative, that are sometimes racist, that are also sometimes revolutionary in their thinking. Um, The the orangutan has a place in in so many different debates and and in so many different intellectual currents that, again, this is something about the book that I found remarkable and that I really hadn't appreciated before, before reading it. You refer to Discovery as the first chapter, and I would like to just stay there a little bit longer if we can. It seems like the notion of creation occurs in this chapter in a number of different ways. There's the problem of human creation and the relationship between the creation of the human and the creation of the creature, There's also the creation of the orangutan as as a term itself, as the the idea of the orangutan, what might this be. Um, Perhaps you could speak a little bit more to that and how that came into the discussion around the scientific system of naming and classification that emerged in the 18th century.
0: Well, most people know that the term... Orangutan means person of the forest. It's a, it's a Malay term and it seems to conjure up this idea that has been so, so common that the, the orangutan is somehow human or almost human or just on the other side of uh, not, not being human. But there's a little mystery, which is the fact that traditionally people of the Malay world, Malay speakers, didn't use the term orangutan to refer to the to the red ape. They had their own terms, mias, mayas, mawas. Uh, now, the uh, question then is, why did the West take on this term that means person of the, uh, of the forest? Now, part of the answer is they took it on because it is so expressive of that ambiguity. You can take a word from foreign language and use it to give credibility to a, an idea without completely accepting that idea. Nonetheless, the question is how did the how did the term get into English? And we spent a lot of time trying to uh, to, to work out this uh, this problem. We realised that it went back to the 17th century and to the very earliest descriptions of uh, of orangutans. And in the first published uh, description of an orangutan was uh, in Latin and published in Leiden, in Holland, in the Netherlands, and. Um, the term orangutan is described as the name that the Malays give to this this animal. There was a, uh, an orangutan that had been brought to the court of the uh, of the Dutch stadholder. It died. It was uh, dissected, and the, the man who dissected it um, decided wrote about it and referred to it as an orangutan. So we want to know where did he get the the name from? Well, we discovered that. About 20 years earlier, another Dutch physician who had been based in Batavia and who had since died, like nearly everyone in Batavia, of some kind of intestinal disease, uh, had written a description of creatures that he called orangutan. In many descriptions of the uh, of the orangutan, this account of orangutans is mentioned as the first and highly inaccurate. Description of the of the red ape. But if you read it, not thinking that it should refer to the uh, to the red ape, it actually doesn't sound like an ape at all. It sounds like a human, or in fact, a group of humans who have some kind of a uh, an affliction, some kind of a, a disease. And the real breakthrough was uh, came out of some conversations we had with medical researchers about just what kind of disease might be being described in this fairly brief account. And it appears likely, of course we can't be certain, but it appears likely that it was endemic cretinism. Endemic cretinism is a disease that comes from iodine deficiency. It's related to, to goiters. People with goiters will tend to produce children who are technically known as uh, as cretins. And the description that is headed of Rangutan, in this early 17th-century account, seems to be a description of real people who probably suffered from endemic cretinism, and then that t- description was misread by the scientist in the Netherlands who used the term to apply to the uh, to the red ape. But of course, it stuck. It stuck because it was so evocative as a description of that almost human status of the animal.
1: And it's curiously appropriate also insofar as, again, the the problem becomes one of how do we distinguish um, whatever this creature is from whatever we may be as humans, that the persistent problem that the book uh, returns to throughout. Um, So you identify especially the the important roles that um, scientists concerned with with physiology are playing at this stage. Uh, But... at at some point also the discussion moves from problems of physiology problems of scientific classification to the kinds of questions you were alluding to earlier about what are the criteria for humanness Um, how do we can we identify rationality or self-awareness in these creatures so perhaps um Again, this, this is leading into the subsequent chapter on the species boundary questions. Perhaps you can say something more about that aspect of the work.
0: Well, taxonomists these days all use the Linnaean system. The the word species in Latin means appearance. So uh, taxonomists rely almost entirely on the, the physical specimen that they can observe, that they can uh, experiment with, uh, Habitat and behaviour normally play no role at all in, uh, in scientific classification. So in terms of the physical differences between orangutans and humans, there was absolutely no doubt by the uh, early 19th century that humans and orangutans were not only different species, but were fairly different in terms of their physical uh, appearance. But even while the uh, the, the scientists were coming down very firmly on the side of a a vast gap between humans and, and orangutans. People who actually encountered them continued to be intrigued by the apparent similarity between the minds of humans and the minds of orangutans. They continually commented on things that orangutans appeared to do that expressed what you might call higher human mental characteristics or higher human emotions. There's a, a famous description, for instance, of an orangutan who was uh, deprived of, a, of one of its favourite toys, who threw a tantrum, lay on the floor, screaming, kicking, banging its fists on the, on the ground, and then briefly stopped to see whether its uh, tantrum was having any effect on the observer, and when it uh, appeared that it wasn't, the orangutan stopped. So here was an example of uh, an orangutan that was apparently trying to manipulate human beings in a fairly sophisticated way. It was conscious of the emotional response that its tantrum might evoke in in humans. Now, in the late 19th and early 20th century, scientists began to look seriously at psychology, human psychology, animal psychology, and they began experiments with their great apes, particularly with chimpanzees, but also with orangutans. In those early experiments, orangutans didn't show up as very intelligent at all, uh, partly because there were not so many of them, they were much more fragile in, uh, in zoos, so they were, they were harder to keep, uh, but partly, it seems, because they didn't really respond to the kind of simple, repetitive experiment that, r- that chimpanzees thrived on orangutans would look at these experiments think what on earth is that what am I doing that for something else is going to be much more interesting than this consequence was that chimpanzees were regarded as the most intelligent of great apes with orangutans regarded as a bit of cheap, so a bit slow and uh, and dull and you could see that characterization in the the first of the Planet of the Apes films, and in the original book, uh, The Planet of the Apes by Kjapul, on which the film series was uh, was based. Chimpanzees are the imaginative ones, orangutans are powerful but they're not very uh, imaginative. Going into the 20th century, as uh, psychological testing became more sophisticated, uh, people began to realise that indeed orangutans were actually more easily bored than chimpanzees and that the more complicated the tests you gave them, the more likely they were to, to do well. So we found not only on the one hand were orangutans displaying all sorts of interesting human-like emotions, they were also doing some very very clever things. So we have a case for instance of an orangutan in a zoo that traded a piece of food with another with a monkey for a piece of wire, kept the wire in its mouth for a couple of weeks, and then, at a given moment, used the wire to pick a lock and to escape. That shows a pretty high degree of planning, forethought, and sheer intelligence. I'm not very good at picking a lock myself. I'd still be in the cage if if, uh, I was able to follow the orangutan out.
1: Well, you've you've brought us well into the 20th century, but if I can return to the preceding century momentarily, um, at a certain point, um, this discussion around the, um, the rationality and the intelligence of the orangutan, among other great apes, intersects with the discourse on racism and on slavery. You've already alluded to Rousseau. Um, can you say something more about how there was this... What were the meeting points between the orangutan and well, racist ideologies and, and the, the slave trade?
0: Well, there were, there were a, at least a couple of intersections. One was the idea that th- rather than the animal world being divided into... Species that were reproductively isolated, that, that couldn't interbreed, uh, that there was a kind of continuum from one species to another, from one individual to another, so that the highest of the orangutans would be able to uh, mate and to reproduce with the lowest of humans, um, but not with the not with the highest of humans. So there was a lot of uh, speculation about the possibility that. It might be that there might be hybrids between humans and, and orangutans, Now this speculation gave rise to a fairly trashy range of novels and short stories about uh, about hybrids. And it also gave rise to some uh, serious scientific experiments conducted in the Soviet Union in the uh, in the 1930s attempting to create a, a hybrid between humans and great apes, which would be a ideal as a soldier. Uh, the idea was that uh, a, an ape-human hybrid might be tougher and more willing to follow orders than, uh, than humans, humans were. <coughs> there was also an interesting dimension relating to, to labour, Going way back into the uh, into the 17th century and even before, there was a story that humans and, sorry, there was a story that orangutans and other great apes were able to speak, but they refused to speak because they were afraid of being enslaved. They were afraid of being put, put to work. Now, this story coincided with the idea that making Africans slaves, forcing them to work, was actually contributing to their civilization. So at the very bottom of the hierarchy, you had orangutans who refused to work. And then a little bit higher up, forced to work, and therefore forced to become a little bit more civilized, were the Africans. So it was a very neat civilizational justification for uh, for slavery.
1: And yet, that's despite the fact that, um, as you've already indicated, physiologically, by that time, it had been determined that these creatures were apparently it was, not human.
0: It was absolutely clear physiologically that these uh, creatures were, were not human. Opinions are still divided in the scientific world over whether it might be possible to, uh, to create a, a hybrid between mm. humans and orangutans. Uh, we have different numbers of um, uh, chromosomes, so it's a very big obstacle to any kind of uh, hybridisation. But that's not an absolute... Obstacle. Uh, but as everyone who's contemplated this issue has pointed out, there are huge ethical issues uh, involved.
1: Well, and there's a chapter in the book, um, lovely, titled Close Encounters and Dangerous Liaisons, that in some ways touches on this theme on the possibility of uh, sexual relationships between the uh, orangutan and humans as well as the other kinds of uh, close encounters that the species have. Perhaps we can jump to that and, and then come back to a couple of other issues they'd like to take up afterwards. Can you talk a little bit about what's in that chapter?
0: Well, one of the most famous stories is a story that purports to be a, a traditional Dayak story from, from Borneo of a, a human... In some versions of the story, it's a man; in some versions, it's a it's a woman. But in any case, it's a human who's kidnapped by an orangutan, carried off deep into the jungle and to the top of a tree where he or she can't get away, and uh, is turned into a sex slave on uh, uh, at the at the service of this uh, orangutan. Then, in in due course. Uh, The the female, whether it's the female orangutan or the female human, produces uh, a child or or children, um, but manages to escape, leaves the children behind, gets down the tree, flees towards the the coast and reaches the beach just at the moment when there is a fishing boat off the coast. The the human signals to the fishing boat and uh, begins to swim out to it. Meanwhile, the orangutan gives chase, carrying the uh, carrying the child in its uh, in its arms, reaches the shore, and realizes that it has lost its partner forever. Because orangutans are very very bad at swimming, big rivers are a, a major divide for orangutans, for instance. So the orangutan has lost its uh, its life's partner, and with a roar of anguish, it rips the child into two, flings one part into the ocean and the other part into the jungle to symbolise, I suppose, that mixed marriages are not going to work. Uh, This is a uh, a beautifully evocative story, on the one hand, about the possibility of a sexual liaison, a productive sexual liaison, between humans and orangutans, and the fact that socially it's probably not going to, uh, to work out. It actually turns out that it's a Portuguese story, not a Borneo story, and that the Portuguese probably got it from Africa, Rather than from anywhere else, that so it's it's not an indigenous uh, story to Southeast Asia, but Southeast Asians have always been great ones for taking stories, taking ideas from the rest of the world, assimilating them, and then presenting to, to them to the rest of the world as uh, as indigenous.
1: This raises a another theme which runs throughout the book, and one again that in some ways. I hadn't expected, Um, although this is a a podcast on Southeast Asian studies, the book is dominated by Europeans. Indeed, from the beginning, you you mark out the investigating of the orangutan as a Western pursuit, and our conversation will continue to revolve around Europeans. So, in this instance, we have what seems to be um, a direct, story that in actual fact you're suggesting was portuguese in its origin it seems to go again to this theme that wherever you look uh towards the orangutan there's a european appearing and and being a part of the the discussion and the activity in some way or another Uh, why, why is it that southeast asians are markedly absent from the contents of this book
0: Exactly, and it was actually one of the disappointments that we encountered when we were doing the research. We'd expected to find a, a rich indigenous literature dealing with orangutans and dealing in ways that would uh, highlight the, the Western approach, uh, dealing with the similarities between orangutans and, uh, and humans. And we largely drew a blank on this, uh, on this issue. What we found was that uh, Southeast Asians are very, or at least people in the Malay world, are very much interested in tigers. They're interested in buffalo. They're interested in crocodiles and hornbills. There are some animals that have a a large place in the iconography, in the the spiritual world of uh, of Southeast Asians. Uh, And there are others that don't. Uh, It's comparable, I suppose, to the way in which the modern world has what's sometimes called charismatic megafauna—big, exciting animals that uh, people get uh, very much interested in, including the orangutan—and smaller, less interesting animals like slime mould that uh, no one gets very, uh, very excited about. Now, Southeast Asians don't seem to have been excited about uh, about orangutans. One reason for that may be that orangutans became extinct in Java. Very early, uh, they were certainly extinct by the sixth century AD. So we don't find any hint of them in the the very rich Javanese epic tradition. Uh, but even in the Malay world, even in Sumatra, where orangutans survive to uh, to this day, there's hardly any mention of uh, of the great apes in the uh, in the traditional literature, and that's probably mainly because apes and humans don't coexist very, very well. Uh, the, the orangutans are vulnerable to hunting, they're vulnerable to loss of, uh, of habitat. And so, for the most part, where they live are places that are a long way from the centres of civilisation, centres of settlement that produced epics. And even amongst the, uh, the jungle dwellers, orangutans don't seem to have attracted any Particular spiritual significance, other than the fact that they were part of the, uh, the general natural world.
1: And, and you don't think that's simply a problem of sources, that um, or uh, a problem of, of of the availability of data. You do think that there's evidence that uh, other species are um, treated somewhat differently in the storytelling. In the spiritual lives of, of people in these regions,
0: well, we certainly have a lot of evidence that other animals—the crocodile, the hornbill, the buffalo, the tiger—are okay. treated in very different ways. They're regarded as much more uh, much more important. Um, we were quite excited when we found the the story of the uh, the liaison between the the human and the orangutan, and then when we realised that it wasn't a strictly speaking an indigenous story. Uh, really had to think about how the orangutan might fit into uh, into local cultures. There are local stories about the orangutan but most of them you would have to say are not very exciting. They come along the lines of so-and-so was walking along a jungle path, saw an orangutan and they were each frightened and ran off in different directions. That's a story but it doesn't conjure up any uh, great spiritual depths or uh, any
1: interesting cultural features. You could tell that of a, a snake, for instance, exactly. just as much as, as an orangutan. Let's go back to the European sense, their, their early engagement with orangutan, because there's still some fascinating material there that I'd like to touch on. Um, at a certain point, uh, problems turn or questions turn towards... Uh, taking orangutan to Europe initially as dead specimens and later how to get them there alive and then how to keep them alive once they're in Europe, which is no less problematic, apparently, than than getting them there. Um, Can you say uh, something about those activities and um, why did it matter so much to be taking these creatures to Europe?
0: Well, it's actually a a terribly sad story because... uh, Thousands and thousands of uh, young orangutans were, ta- were captured in, uh, in Southeast Asia, put aboard ships and taken to, to Europe to be held either in zoos or in private uh, collections. Uh, a very large number of them died in the process of being captured. Still more died aboard ship, and those who actually made it to Europe very seldom lived for more than one or two winters. European winters can be pretty miserable, particularly in those those times uh, when it was very difficult to provide uh, the right kind of food or the right kind of shelter for orangutans. There was an enormous uh, death death rate. A London zoo, in the end, tended to have an orangutan that they called Jenny, a female orangutan that they called Jenny. But the place of Jenny was occupied by a whole series of orangutans who were there for a couple of years and then died and then had to be replaced. So there was an impression of continuity which was actually, which actually concealed a terrible death rate amongst uh, amongst orangutans. Now they were being brought to Europe partly for scientific research, partly for public display. Humans in, in Europe were already Deeply interested in orangutans, fascinated by that uh, that appearance, uh, that similarity of appearance, and uh, there were many orangutan performances. Sometimes directly on stage, but most often uh, within the context of uh, of zoos. So orangutan tea parties, or sometimes orangutans dressed up as, for instance, servants and paraded around the town in in coaches.
1: And uh, part of that chapter also um, deals with the famous exhibitor of uh, various um, animals from around the world, Barnum. Um, would you like to say something about his place in the, in the narrative, because it is an interesting one?
0: Well, Barnum uh, was uh, the one who was ultimately responsible for the term "wild man" from uh, from Borneo. In fact, he used the term for what he presented as real humans, uh, twins who were supposed to have come from Borneo, but in fact had come from somewhere in the United States. Um, but he was a he was a showman, and he loved to present displays that challenged the idea of human uniqueness. So he used orangutans, but he very often presented them as something that was almost human, presented them as being, as being hybrid or he presented humans who appeared to have some orangutan characteristic perhaps they might have exceptionally long arms or they might be uh, exceptionally hairy and he could present those as being uh, a cross between uh, a human and, uh, and an orangutan so this kind of public uh, display simply fed people's interest in, in orangutans and including the real orangutans that were sitting in the zoos
1: so again, we have this recurrent theme of the, the the threshold between man and animal, and you refer to what he's engaging in as a kind of um, pseudo science. There's a discussion around the orangutans, of the link between uh, the animal world and and the human world, um, and out of that, though, we also get some discussion around. Um, a return to the notion of the savage ape and the imagery of the savage ape in this period. So on the one hand, you have, as you've described, tea parties and nice dresses and civilization, but at the same time, um, there is the depictions of the creature back in the wild. And it seems as if, um, at a certain point, there is there's increasingly a shift towards thinking about the orangutan as... A wild and potentially dangerous animal, so um, exactly
0: when those uh, young orangutans were being taken to to Europe, the impression that the uh, that the animal gave was of weakness and helplessness, dependence on uh, on human beings. The tantrum that I mentioned uh, earlier was childlike uh, but then, in eighteen twenty four we can we discover. A sudden dramatic change in the way or at least an additional stream in the way in which uh, orangutans are presented and this was actually one of our exciting discoveries because this change is in many ways the ancestral insight that led ultimately to King Kong. So in 1824 a British ship stopped on the coast of Sumatra to, uh, to collect water the the sailors encountered a large male orangutan. They gave chase. They chased it up a tree. They then chopped down all the trees around it so that it couldn't get away. Chopped the the tree down and attacked it with uh, with spears. And one of the one of those present then wrote an account of this encounter, which ended in the uh, the death of the of the orangutan. And the it was a gripping story of jungle savagery of a single ape keeping at bay perhaps a dozen or uh, 20 british uh, british sailors until he was finally uh, finally overcome and this this story was published once it was reprinted it was reprinted dozens of times embellished expanded uh, in the press in uh, in europe and it created the image of uh, a different kind of orangutan uh, not the helpless uh, babies of the uh, of the zoo, but a savage creature of the uh, of the jungle and you can you can trace as I say we, we have traced the the idea of King Kong as the ultimate enormous savage ape all the way back to this account about the orangutan. it goes for instance into uh, a relatively little-known uh, novel by Sir Walter Scott called *Count Robert of Paris*, which has a giant orangutan that uh, commits uh, commits murder. Um, uh, one of the interesting consequences of uh, of this bifurcation of the uh, public image of the orangutan is that there was also a scientific bifurcation. Many people, many scientists, imagined that there were actually two kinds of orangutan. A big one and a small one, and that they were completely that uh, they were both great apes, but they were separate, uh, separate species. Um, the uh, the big one in the end was interpreted as being identical with the gorilla, the traditional name for the gorilla. At least one of the traditional names for the gorilla was Pombo. and. By the rules of scientific nomenclature, the way in which animals get their names, in the end, a name that had originally applied to the gorilla came to be- become the scientific name of the uh, of the orangutan, Pongo.
1: We might move from the scientists because you've brought in popular culture, a number of points, and. Um, I'd like to stick with it. You you have a couple of chapters on the orangutan in fiction, but also in stage and screen. You've mentioned um, a couple of authors' works. You've also um, referred to Planet of the Apes at an earlier stage, and that um, part of the discussion emerges late in the the text. So uh, how does the orangutan end up being represented in... Fiction in different ways, in different periods. Um, you have a couple of iconic texts that uh, perhaps you may like to start with.
0: There are there are really two ways in which the orangutan appears in uh, in literature in, in general. Uh, the first, and it goes back to the question of uh, the animal elements in human nature. Now, what does it mean for human identity? To say that we are really animals, there have been two vastly different answers to this question. Even though many people might take a uh, might take both views, or might take a, a, a median view between them. So one answer is that humans are civilized. We have managed to overcome our animal origins, and the animal in humans is everything that is. Savage, everything that is wild, everything that is say, uncivilized and dangerous. So, some of the literary works conjure up that idea that the orangutan is almost human, but it encompasses within itself everything that is bad and savage about humans. And then, on the other hand, there are literary works that say. Civilization has basically wrecked humans. It's corrupted us. It has led us to refinement that is ultimately destroying the, uh, the planet and creating uh, cruel, unjust civilizations. So in those uh, literary works, the orangutan represents all that is noble in humankind and represents an ideal that we should be striving to, to go back to.
1: So can you illustrate well, with reference to one or two texts there? Well,
0: the, the, the two most striking examples are, uh, on one hand, a, a novel by Thomas Love Peacock called Melancourt, in which there is an orangutan who has the beautiful name so- Oran Auton, Auton means uh, high tone in, in French. Uh, and he is elected to the British Parliament. Uh, he doesn't speak but he is very good company he doesn't mind a glass of sherry every now and then or in fact quite uh, quite often uh, if he has too many he's inclined to jump out the window and swing from the trees but he's he's pretty good company and he has a very strong sense of natural law so he's quite happy to beat up the uh, the bad guys and to rescue the heroine from her the kidnappers he's a he's a real orangutan hero and he really symbolises the uh, the best about the animalistic characteristic of, of orangutans. Then, on the other hand, we have uh, Edgar Allan Poe's uh, short story, Murders in the Rue Morgue, in which an orangutan, uh, who has been the, the pet, or at least the captive, of a sailor, escapes in Paris from the, uh, from the room of the sailor, Clambers across the rooftops and into the locked room of a, a couple of women uh, and kills them. Uh, he's not necessarily deliberately homicidal, but he has seen the sailor shaving with a cutthroat razor. He wants to shave the women. They resist, and he ends up cutting their uh, their throats. So it's quite a quite a horrible story, and it conjures up the idea that. If you bring the jungle into Western society, it's no. only going to lead to tragedy.
1: And then also there's the French precursor to the Planet of the Apes, Monkey Planet, of which I was not aware previously.
0: Well, uh, the, the the novel by Pierre Boulle, uh, which became the basis of, uh, of Planet of the Apes. Uh, it's particularly interesting, I suppose because it's interesting for all sorts of reasons. It's interesting because it's one of the very few novels that features all three varieties of of great apes. So orangutans, chimpanzees, and gorillas all appear more or less as racial types of of great apes. So it becomes a kind of allegory for um, a a multiracial society. But as you probably know, it's a story in which uh, a, a spaceman encounters a uh, a planet in which apes have become the the dominant species, and humans are in the wilderness. They're simple. They're wild. They're without without civilization, and they're they're hunted by gorillas for sport. They're uh, captured for you uh, for scientific experiments by uh, the the very intelligent uh, chimpanzees. Um, And I suppose uh, Monkey Planet conjures up the idea that... uh, It's it's an idea that really goes back to Rousseau, that what separates humans from great apes is not so much any kind of inherent intelligence, but just opportunity. Humans make a few wrong steps, if great apes, particularly orangutans, if they're the most intelligent, if they make a few of the right steps, then perhaps the uh, the positions could be reversed. Although that doesn't look very likely to be the case uh, these days with the, uh, the huge environmental pr- pressure on all orangutans, on all great apes.
1: Well, as we're I'm running short on time, although I'd like to perhaps dwell a bit more on fiction and on film... Um, Perhaps you can say something about uh, conservation efforts and the orangutan in the present day, which is the subject of the concluding chapters in the book.
0: The, the orangutan is extremely vulnerable to uh, to extinction. Uh, in fact, orangutan numbers have been in decline for many thousands of years, so well before we can uh, really blame it on, uh, on humans. There used to be orangutans in... Uh, What's now Vietnam, probably in parts of southern China, and one of our exciting discoveries was a an early account that indicates pretty strongly a an eyewitness encounter with an orangutan in uh, in Vietnam, but they're not there now. They're not in the Malay Peninsula. There's about five thousand in Sumatra. There's perhaps sixty thousand in uh, in Borneo. Five thousand in Sumatra is really the minimum that gives us any hope for the survival of the, uh, of the species in, in any kind of natural way. The populations in Borneo are divided, uh, divided by rivers, divided by human settlement, so for practical purposes the individual populations are a lot, uh, a lot smaller than 60,000. And just about everywhere they're under pressure from hunting, from loss of, uh, of habitat, and from external circumstances. There have been terrible forest fires in both Sumatra and, uh, and Borneo and they create uh, terrible respiratory problems for orangutans. So It's not directly human doing, but it's nonetheless been catastrophic for uh, orangutan communities. Orangutans reproduce slowly and they can't recover from sudden shocks. They can't recover quickly from sudden shocks.
1: And questions of um, protection of the remaining numbers and protection of the habitats raise questions around the legal regime that might enable us to do it. Uh, You discuss that regime um, briefly in the book. Uh, You might like to to mention it, but also from there go into... um, Other aspects of contemporary law and politics around the orangutan and that's in particular the animal rights movement and the notion of the orangutan as a bearer of rights which is the concluding chapter and really one of the fascinating parts of the book as well
0: Well, Indonesia has on the face of it quite a good system of national parks so there are large reserves in which orangutans are uh, are protected. <clears throat> there are two problems. One is that the management of the national parks is not always good. Uh, some of them have been very well managed; others uh, have not been well well handled. And so there has been clearing of forests. There has been hunting within the uh, within the national parks. So the the political will to protect orangutans in Indonesia. Is certainly there, but it's uneven. And as I said before, orangutans don't survive crises very well. So a, a couple of years of lack of protection can be absolutely catastrophic for an orangutan community. They don't recover immediately when there, when the protection is uh, is restored. So the the long term prospects for a, a healthy orangutan community uh, are not. Are not good, um, even though extinction is not a threat this decade, for instance. Um, now part of the problem has always been that uh, there is a market, particularly in uh, Europe and Asia, less so in North America or, or Australia, for baby orangutans as pets. And this, the, uh, the collecting of baby orangutans, always involves killing killing the mother and Sending the baby off to uh, um, rich customers, particularly in Taiwan, in parts of uh, of Europe, and this is of course enormously destructive because uh, the the mother has to be killed, and then there's a very high death rate amongst the uh, orangutans. Uh, th- there has been a significant program of recovery for these uh, for these orangutans, bringing them back. To jungle areas, training them to to live in the in the jungle, um, but it's no substitute for protection. And alongside that uh, specific campaign, we've seen a very interesting global campaign to recognise that orangutans and other great apes have rights that no other animals have; that they have rights which arise from their resemblance to human beings. Now in fact there's a lot of discussion within ethical circles about whether we should only whether we should give rights to orangutans only because they're humans or they're like humans. Uh, should we perhaps not give rights to all sentient beings or to all all animals? Uh, but many people have argued that Orangutans and other great apes can be a kind of sentinel or a pioneering species for the uh, the, the granting of greater rights to, uh, to to more species of animals.
1: And what form might those rights take? And you, in the book, mention uh, some of the debates between Peter Singer and his counterparts. How how might we envisage a regime of orangutan rights as a what you describe as a, as a bridgehead for the extension of rights to other animals?
0: Well, in particular, the, the first right has been the right not to be experimented upon. So we have very strict uh, rules of methi- medical ethics which prevent uh, all sorts of uh, um, medical research on humans. Um, there has been a significant extension of that kind of protection to great apes, within some jurisdictions so the us has put restrictions new zealand has put restrictions spain has put uh, put restrictions uh, so this is a, a major advance in recognizing that uh, great apes might need to be treated in a in a special way second big area has been uh, Protection against being put on display, being treated as objects, as museum objects, or as objects of entertainment. Uh, so, in particular, they can no longer be used in circuses, no longer be uh, put on display in zoos. Now, that's more uh, controversial, partly because zoos are also playing, <coughs> partly because zoos are also playing a significant role in conservation in in various ways. What we've seen has been a gradual and incremental increase in uh, protections for orangutans, still on a very small scale, but nonetheless, uh, uh, nonetheless significant. But this brings us up against the ethical question, the philosophical question of what makes orangutans, what gives orangutans this kind of entitlement. And uh, so if we regard orangutans as having entitlement because they're sentient beings, raises immediate questions about how we treat humans who are not sentient. And Peter Singer, who is one of the foremost philosophers of uh, working on the edge of hu- the rights of humankind, the rights of animal kind, and <clears throat> is right in the middle of this, uh, this question. How do we deal with severely disabled humans? What kind of rights do we recognize? Uh, Do do we accord to them? Do we recognize in in them? Uh, And in many ways, it's the same kind of uh, issues that arose in the 17th century when people first began to encounter, uh, encounter orangutans. If we pick on certain orangutan characteristics, as being shared with humans. When we look at humans, we find not all humans share those characteristics. By drawing the, the line between humans and orangutans very sharply, we tend to strengthen human rights, If we deprive orangutans of all rights. We start to give orangutans rights, then we undermine the rights of, uh, of humans, and it becomes a very murky, messy, ethical issue.
1: And so we remain in this liminal space where we began, which indeed is where the book itself ends. Um, It is a wonderful book. Uh, Robert, you've been very generous with your time, but before you close, would you like to say something about what you've been doing since completing this book and what we can look forward to next?
0: Well, my next project is something completely different. It's an examination of war crimes trials. I'm looking at the trials of uh, Japanese who committed atrocities during the Second World War. The trials were conducted by seven different powers in uh, uh, Asia and the, and the Pacific. And it's examining the way in which justice issues and a tangle of different kinds of considerations of what justice means in the context of war, in the context of decolonisation uh, might, might, might mean.
1: I'd love to go into it further with you, but I think we'll leave that for the next discussion that we have. Um, I do hope that you will come back and speak to us again once the next publication is out. I'd be delighted. So um, thank you very much, Robert Cribb, for joining us today to speak about your new book, Wild Man from Borneo, A Cultural History of the Orangutan, which is co-authored with Helen Gilbert and Helen Tiffin, And thank you also to everyone for listening. I'm Nick Cheeseman, and I look forward to having you online via iTunes or the web for the next interview with another author of a new book in Southeast Asia.